Hello there. Welcome along to the podcast Sport and Life. Thank you for hitting on the button. I hope you're well. If you're in the UK, I hope you're enjoying, enduring, whatever way you view it, the weather, the heat, which I quite enjoy spending my uh, formative years in the Caribbean, which I'll talk a little bit about on the podcast with Eric Fulweiler, which we'll get to very soon. CEO, founder of, of Rival, co-founder of Rival, and we'll be there in, in just a second. But quick thank you to you and a quick thank you to the sponsors as well. The chief sponsor of the podcast still really appreciate the support of Bang Olufsen of Cheltenham and Serene AV, specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations. Also grateful for the association with Cytoplan, food-based supplements, the idea being they're consumed as food would be. We've been taking them for 20 plus years as a family under the stewardship of my father, Dr. Mark Draper, who is a general practitioner and a micronutritionist. And we can offer with the podcast a 30% discount off your first purchase of supplements, 10% thereafter with the code DRAPER10R. So go to cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk and the discount code DRAPER10R, my last name, D-R-A-P-E-R, all capital letters, the numerals one zero and the capital letter R. Also a new association with the podcast with the Holman Academy. Founder Anthony Asprey has been on the podcast helping gentlemen live better and they will actually consult with women as well, particularly if you're worried about a man in your life, but he is offering uh, a free mentoring session. So we're intent on helping you to enjoy life and teamed up with the Holman Academy and arrange for some lucky listeners to get a 100% free mentoring session with Anthony. By the end of the session, you'll be much clearer on how to tackle any issues or challenges you're going through, especially if you ever feel stuck or not exactly where you want to be in life. I kind of feel like that all the time. Uh, but certainly it's uh, it's a good to, to air these conversations. And he's a man who's been through massive career transitions and changes and has a lot of empathy. So worth speaking to him if you've for free as well. He's, he obviously he's got good paying customers, but nice for him to offer this for free. There are only five sessions to give away with the podcast each month. Act fast, schedule your complimentary session right now. Use the link in our show notes. So appreciate Anthony for that offer as well. Right onto the podcast. Eric Fulweiler, who I first met when I believe he was CEO at Vayner Media, Gary Vaynerchuk's London office, Gary V online, who a lot of my friends have listened to as an inspirational character. And Eric, then uh, our relationship has continued over the last few years. He worked at 11FS, I believe head of marketing there, now started his own company, Rival, which he can tell us all about, so I don't butcher it. But here he is, the one and only Eric Fulweiler. Eric Fulweiler, welcome to the podcast, Sport and Life. How are you? I'm good, man. And thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. A lot of people can't, even some people that I worked for for many, many years. So respect. What do they say? The, 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 call it full viola, do they? The German German way. Well, of... yeah. If I'm ever in Germany or Switzerland or anywhere and talking to any German speakers, it's always full viola. And that's actually originally where it came from. Yeah. Um, and then other people just, I get a lot of full, full wheeler. Oh, I get okay. a lot of, um, I get a lot of kind of just like mumbling over the end of it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So all good. All good. It's funny, actually, that because I think sports broadcasting has changed massively the last 20, 30 years. And one thing my generation's had with the help of the Internet and pronunciation websites and stuff like that. But, for example, in the Premier League, which used to be predominantly English, Irish, Scottish players, it's now international. So you have to kind of be aware of, 
of how people pronounce their names and it it could be the same name but it's a swedish version not a danish version there's slight it's, it's quite complicated as well how you how you is, approach is that's is that something that they give you training on or you just kind of pick it up as you go you learn as you go not not so much you definitely learn as you go and there are websites there's a website called forvo which you can put the name in and then you can hmm. if it's a name that's say common in spain and italy you'll have the different pronunciations from spain uh, to italy. Cool. I mean, but it's how it's it's how into the weeds you go with it as well and how nuanced you get because yeah because then you get things like oh in this part of spain they pronounce it like this and in this part right. of spain so it's like you have to i guess give a nod to it and also make it sound realistic in english without suddenly breaking into so you're not flamboyant. you're not like uh did you see that clip from oh, man i don't know sometime during covid it was relatively recently though of that newscaster that did like the broadcast in like english and then perfect italian and perfect french and perfect really? Belgian. you're not like that you I'm didn't not, see that. Oh, I'm not I'll like send that. It to you. Yeah, send it to it's me. It's amazing. That, yeah. He just like, it's scripted, obviously, but he just nails the accent. Um, but I, I mean, that's an extreme example. But I do think like little things like that. I know that we've already gone off on a tangent, but uh, little things like that, I think, can go a long way. You know, mm. even just the attempt, particularly in this part of the world. And as an American coming from a place that is, of course, not homogenous in culture and race yeah. and politics and all that stuff. But, you know, relatively homogenous in language and also the American kind of vibe, as I'm sure people who have come across Americans know, is like, hey, you know, we pronounce things the way we want to pronounce things and <laughs> you all can figure it out. Um, but over here in this part of the world, I think little things like that, just making the attempt to get somebody's name right, et cetera, actually goes a long way. Yeah. And I think there's, there's a sense that in other languages, you have to be a bit more precise. Whereas in English, I think the Americans and British, we benefit from the yeah. fact that words are pronounced about five different ways and we kind of understand where, where you, what you're getting at. I think about that so often, like just how lucky I am to have been born in the country that I was. It's yeah. such an advantage in business and life to be a native English speaker. Like it just is with the way that the world is structured right now. So I really try to not take that for granted, try to remind my kids not to take that for granted. And, you know, we're a little bit different than most Americans. First of all, we live overseas, mm. but second of all, we speak multiple languages as well. Really? Um, but I think it's such a, I think about that all the time, just how much of our lives are actually dictated by things that we don't control, like where you were born and who yeah. you were born to. And that goes in so many different directions, but language is definitely a big part of it. Yeah, I think that's a big thing in, in politics as well, when you think about it. And I, I'm not really partisan in, in any particular direction, but I do always think that as much as I think we should aspire to be better and everyone has an opportunity, I think where you start, like you say, the fortune of, of the, the ingredients you have, we don't start at the, the same place in the, in the running race. What languages do you speak then? So we speak Italian at home. Oh, wow. My wife and I are both from Boston. My family is, you know, American, American, like you know, fifth generation, whatever, but American. Uh, my wife's father is American, Boston Irish, but her mom is Israeli. Mm. So she actually can speak a little bit and understands all of Hebrew. And we still have a lot of family in Israel. Her grandmother actually just died. She was a, you know, one of the, one of the survivors of the Holocaust oh, whoa. and kind of, um, you know, set up this kibbutz in Israel in the 1940s. Crazy. Mm. She just passed away. So yeah, Italian, um, a little bit of Hebrew when we have family come through. And then for me, I can get along in French, uh, in Spanish. I've just kind of always been interested in languages. And I think that's part of why I live overseas actually is growing up in uh, Boston with my parents kind of from Boston. I was always fascinated by just how much of the world there is to see, mm. but also you come across these people where you ask them where they're from 
and it's like a story. They're like, well, I was born here. My parents are from here. And then I moved there. Whereas for me, it was like, yeah, I'm from Boston. Yeah. You know, that's it. I can tell you the town, but that's all that I got. And so I really wanted to just see more of the world and have my kids grow up with a bit of a story to where they're from. That's brilliant. Yeah, I traveled a lot as a kid, actually. I moved all over the UK, lived in the Caribbean for a little bit on a tiny island in the Turks and Caicos Islands. My dad was a doctor out oh, there. Oh, amazing. And, and I lived in the States, did my master's in journalism and, and had that perspective as well. So I think it does, it's tough at times when you're younger and you move around because you have to be yeah, the new totally. kid at school. But I think when you, when you come to sort of matters of people talk about diversity and acceptance and yeah. equality, I think if you've been an outsider as a kid, I think it's intuitive. And I think you, all the complexities that adults and grown-ups try and talk about, I think actually fades away because when you've been an expert, you realize everyone's the same. And, you know, if you're a white kid in a, a black class, for example, like I yeah. was predominantly, it's, yeah. it, it was never something you even thought about. So it's, I think now it, it, it does help you because it, you, you realize first and foremost, the more you travel, the more you speak to people and you can speak in, to people in their own language, which is amazing. You understand that they're very similar human beings at base level. Yeah. And I just think that perspective is everything. Mm. There's no reality without the lens through which you perceive it. And the broader and deeper your perspective, I think the more nuanced and the more, um, you know, the more you can control how you relate to situations around you. I don't know that we ever talked about this, but actually my first job at a university was in the Caribbean. Really? Did you know that? No, Did I didn't. I tell where, you that? where was yeah. that? So I was based in New York. Um, but my, I thought I was going to go into public sector, nonprofit, maybe government, state department. Um, and so I graduated. I, I spent some time in Southern Africa. Yeah. And I was supposed to go work for the Clinton Foundation HIV AIDS Initiative in Mozambique. Whoa. And amazing. at the last minute, they transferred me to the Caribbean, had me hmm. based in New York. But I was in the Bahamas, in Jamaica, Dominican Republic, Trinidad and Tobago. I don't think we worked in the Turks and Caicos, but it was all kind of working with the ministries of health yeah. on HIV AIDS, uh, care, outreach, et cetera, in that part of the world. Well, that's, that's amazing. It was it was just, and I think it we'll talk about it a bit because you've stayed in London with your new company and you love the weather here. But I think yeah. for me, I've struggled. <laughs> I've struggled because you spent the formative, I suppose I was there from about three to seven and a bit, I think. And I remember we go to school and it was an amazing school, actually. We were, we were ahead of where our classmates when we came back to the UK, even though it was in this sort of like wooden hut on top of a hill, it was fantastic. But it was an island, Grand Turk, seven miles long, one mile wide. And you'd, you'd get out of school and we literally had a house on the beach and you'd run down and you'd spend three hours in the sea every night. And it was just, it was phenomenal. And I think yeah. in the UK between November and February, when it's gray and, and drizzly and you're kind of struggling for, for sunlight, it, it does it does wear on me a bit. So that might be partly genetic as well. I don't know how, you, how people approach it. Um, but do you think the communication of speaking different languages has helped you and, and traveling has that helped you with people in business do you think and and your I guess but both the people you're working with other companies but the people who work for you your employees I, I think so um you know there are the infrequent circumstances where actually speaking the language comes in handy you know, I remember one time we were pitching a client in Italy or mm. actually have a client now who's Italian. And so sometimes we'll drop into Italian and that I think particularly as an American or particularly for people that work in the UK and America that are kind of used to having to default to English. Mm. I think a little bit of that goes a long way. And I think more broadly, and you can always argue nature, nurture, symptom, cause is the fact that I'm so fascinated with languages because I'm interested in relating to people in a different way, or do I relate to people in different ways because I speak languages? Probably a little bit of both. Um, 
but yeah, I definitely think that it does. And I think that it's just, I guess in my head, I'm trying to figure out which one it actually is. I think it probably comes from, and this is maybe leveling things up to a broader theme. I'm sure we'll talk about in this, in this Mm. conversation is my thing, like my background now. So I did the nonprofit thing. Actually, I studied music in, in university. I was going to be a professional jazz musician. Oh, awesome. And then I realized like, I did r- not want to try to... <laughs> not the jazz I flute. I did not want to try to have a career. <laughs> well, I've actually played a little bit of flute because my main instrument was tenor sax. Um, but when you're you know, trying to be a professional, the, the expectation is that if you are you know, gigging as the saxophonist, you can also play all the other woodwind mm. instruments. So I played clarinet and I played a little bit of flute and I played all the saxophones and all that stuff. But anyway, well, I had you. that stint. I had the stint in uh, in the nonprofit world with the Clinton Foundation. And then I kind of got into business and marketing. But my thing is, and still is, I actually think that I'm in the business of, and what fascinates me and what I love about what I do is the people side of it. Yeah. You know, building a business, building a team. How do you get people to believe in something, especially now starting my own company with my two co-founders? Like there was nothing there. Mm. And now there's something. And there's people that we've hired and clients that we work with that are believing in what we built from like it's such a fascinating thing to wrap your head around. And then the marketing side of it, in a way, you know, marketing is all about changing perception and behavior to grow a business or a brand. So it's the same type of thing. So I think that's where it all comes from for me. And it took me a while to figure that out. Although my dad is an MD, PhD psychiatrist. So I probably shouldn't, it shouldn't have (laughs) taken me that long to figure out. Um, But I think that's what it is. Like it's all about people at the end of the day. And it's actually ironic for me. And people are a bit surprised when they hear me say this, particularly if they see, you know, all the content I put out on LinkedIn or whatever, like I'm a huge introvert. And it's actually really? something I'm trying to talk more about of like, you don't, you see all these personalities out there and the stereotypical entrepreneur or businessman or woman is this loud, brash, extroverted character. Your old boss, Gary Some of us may or may not have worked for characters like that, Yeah, but that's one way to do it. And I do think they have an advantage in many ways, but actually you can be more of a quiet, reserved, thoughtful introvert and still be very successful as an entrepreneur and in people businesses, you just need to stay true to who you are and not try to be what you think you should be Mm. or what everybody else tells you you should be. And it took me a long time to realize that. And that's part of what I'm in my tiny corner of the professional world, trying to preach a little bit more so that hopefully someone like me 20 years ago, hears that and is like, Oh, I don't need to be like that. There's actually a different path for me to do it differently. So even though I'm an introvert, it just comes down to how I build my energy, which is I need my time alone, Mm -hmm. but all of my day is spent having conversations with people. And I'm fascinated by that. It's not like a, it's not a mutually exclusive type of thing. It's not a zero sum type of thing. You can still be fascinated with and love being around people while at the same time, need your alone time to kind of recharge. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating learning more about people and the differences actually with energy as well, because I think energy and time are the, two kind of vital commodities that we have in life and we don't have much much time and sometimes it feels like we don't have much energy and I've learned a lot about that actually the last few years becoming a father and realizing when I was working away on my own I, I would feel drained my wife obviously with a little girl who's introverted would feel very overwhelmed by the fact of because because my daughter's more like me she wants to talk she wants to ask questions and obviously my wife loves it more than anything in the world but it's it's interesting that my wife before I suppose would always have that offset of when I was at work she could recharge and and reset and and I always had 
you know, generally more of an active social life before you become a father and you had an outlet into playing sport. And as you get a bit older and get injured, it's, it's harder to play sport. And it's, it's realizing that, oh, I need, I need to go and see people and recharge and she needs to have time off to, to recharge. And it's, but it's, I guess understanding that is quite important. And I think often introverted people probably realize, realize that more, but how difficult is the day for you then on a, particularly when you're leading a team, do you have to have, make speeches in front of a group of people? Is that, is that challenging? Is it draining? How do you, how do you manage your energy? So within rival or my team or working with clients, um, I, actually, I guess, yes and no. So having a conversation like this or talking to the team or presenting to a client that in itself is not draining. I actually mm. really like it and really look forward to it. Overall, having, and I'm I'm kind of very structured to your point, all we have is time and energy. I'm kind of fascinated and relentless, maybe to a fault with trying to squeeze every minute of productivity out of every day. And so my days are like very scheduled. Like I have learned when I'm most productive and what the type of schedule is that I need to be most productive overall. So I have my downtime in the mornings and that's no meetings, no calls after the gym, coffee, and I'm working through strategy or high priority projects. And I'm head down, phone off, no slack, none of that. And then the rest of the day from, you know, now it's 11 and this is my first meeting from now until six will all be meetings. Whoa. Um, and we're, we're a remote team. So all those meetings are virtual. Although we, you know, the people that are based here in London and we give everybody a WeWork pass. And so I do see people from time to time. And that in itself isn't really draining, but, you know, eventually I think that when I get to the weekends and now kind of starting a business, I, I put a little bit of time in on Saturdays as well. Uh, I definitely do need a little bit of recharge time at the end of it. I think the specific one for me that's most draining and is most trigger, most trigger point or a big trigger point as an introvert is conferences and events. Mm -hmm. So going to, you know, I was in Cannes for the advertising festival and like, yeah, who am I to complain about having to go to the <laughs> South of France for a week for work? They're definitely worse places, but yeah. oh man, it's so draining. It's, I think the in-person, the networking, you know, the dinners to the cocktail things to the, you know, walking up and talking to people that for me is really draining mm. as an introvert. But again, I've got my system for it and it's not that I don't enjoy it. And I also know it's really important to do those things to build our business and also to a certain extent to build my, my personal brand. But I know like, okay, after can, after that week, I need Saturday and Sunday off, or mm -hmm. I need to pick up my kids on Friday afternoon and not have calls after two. So I've kind of learned how to deal with it. Yeah. It's a challenge as well with your family, isn't it? Cause you don't want to be exhausted when you spend time with them in kind of, you know, stony silence in the corner. You need to, especially with kids, you need to, to have that energy to interact with them. But I guess it's a, it's a different thing. How is it's interesting the crossovers we talked about before we started recording this podcast and why I like speaking to business people and trying to draw parallels between sport and, and life and why I think a lot of us, even when we're, I'm into my forties now, are fascinated by sport and what we can learn from it. And I think routine is a big one and, and preparation and to, to performance and training and having a structure to it. Are you someone that advocates a specific morning routine? Is it something that you've picked up from other people? Is it something that you do? Because I know that it's interesting because I work random hours at work, but I, I notice often your emails are sort of 5.30 in the morning or something like that. I'll get, I'll get an email. So obviously aware that you're, you're an early riser. I am. The biggest thing I would say is that there's no one answer for everybody. Mm. And that sounds obvious and almost cliche, but for anybody who feels like they haven't figured out their schedule, like 
listen to me, but then go listen to yourself, like looking inward and figuring out what you need is the most important thing, not trying to copy somebody else's. Um, so yeah, I've, you know, my kind of routine that I've figured out over the years, I'm very much a morning person. So I get up early, I get up at five, I do about an hour of work and then I go to the gym mm. and then I've got my downtime and then I've got meetings the rest of the day. Um, so it took me a little while to kind of figure that out. And it's not like I can do, well, I mean, for the most part, I do get that in almost every day, but now, especially starting a business, there's travel and there's things that are going to disrupt it. And sometimes it's the school run that I got to do and things like that. But as much as possible, that's kind of the, um, that's the routine that I've built for myself that seems to work pretty well. Do you have a rule of when you'll break it? For example, if, you know, you say the circumstances like you have to travel for work or whatever it is, because that's difficult, is it? Because I always have like, I'm trying to create a structure with the podcast when I do it and things like that. But obviously sometimes yeah. it could be a great guest who says I can only do this date at this, this time. I don't have a hard and fast rule. Mm. And it's interesting because I think about this all the time. I, the way that I work is I am always, like I said, almost to a fault, trying to find a hard and fast rule for everything. You know, it, I should get up at 4.50 instead mm. of 5 a.m. I should spend 30 minutes doing email instead of an hour. And that's actually something that's really helped me is putting a time cap on how much email or Slack mm. I'll do every morning. Because I think it's, you know, prioritization is everything to your point about time and energy. And it's so easy to let the urgent or the available take precedent over the priority. Meaning the stuff that pops up, particularly with today's virtual yeah. working environment where everything is a notification demanding your attention right away. You could spend your whole week just responding to people and not pushing forward the big priority things. So I'm constantly trying to calibrate, but actually I think, and I'm, I've been thinking about this one and I, I haven't kind of like framed it up in like a bite-sized, really understandable <laughs> way, but let me give it a shot. I think we, or at least I, always push for things to be black and white. It always needs to be this. It never needs to be that. Mm. And actually life and the opportunity and challenges within life, both personal and professional are always gray. And so uh, there was this, um, I don't know if it was Tim Ferriss or one of those other kind of thought leader people out there. I wish I could remember who it was. Mm. Uh, you know who it was? It was James Clear. Do you read I James Clear's newsletter? I don't read James Clear's. I've read Tim Ferriss's newsletter, but I haven't read James Clear's. You yet. should check out James Clear. I think you're really going to like it. And he wrote that book, Atomic Habits. Yes. Have you read that yet? I've read okay. the synopsis of that. I haven't read the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's really good. Although it's one of those things where it's like, okay, everybody else has already kind of said this, but yeah, you're packaging it up in a nice way, in a digestible way. So great. Anyway, James Clear. So it's something, he sends a newsletter every week where it's like, three things. And they're just like little tiny snippets, but they're mind worms. And mm. you find ones that like really resonate with you and unlock a whole different way of thinking. And one of them for me was like really successful people focus on the details, really unsuccessful people focus on the details. The question is which details are you going to focus on? Mm. And so for things like that, of like, when do you break your routine? Like that's where the rubber meets the road. That's yeah. where ultimately success. And it's like, it's, it's not about black or white all the time. It's about when do you dip into the gray? And so you can kind of try to set rules around those things, but a lot of it is instinct and reacting to what comes up and things like that. So um, I don't know if that's a helpful answer for people, but that's kind of how I think about it is like, try to structure as much of it as possible, but don't let that structure restrict you from opportunities when they present themselves. 
No, it's fascinating. I think it, there's a crossover with sport as well, because you can say, when's it the right time to pass the ball in any given sport or hang on to the ball or whatever it might be? And it's very hard to have a hard and fast rule. It depends on yeah. being being in the moment and being present, which you say can be, I think, difficult in the modern world with all the communication. Because as much as I find face-to-face and conversations like this with particularly someone I know like yourself, I find invigorating and, and rejuvenating. I find the digital communication and the, the various platforms of yeah. different different ways of communicating, I find that kind of non-nourishing in a sense you know the constant kind of setting up of, of things versus through text messaging on various various different platforms um with the decision to start the company here i know you've been in london you're working for vayner media and then 11fs we we started meeting of course when you're heading up the, the vayner media london office which is it's been great to, to get to know you. you've given me some valuable insight on your take on the modern media as, as well but your choice to stay in London, I think, is is an interesting one. And especially because a lot of us Brits have a lot of negativity around the UK, particularly at the moment. What was your your reason for staying? You must like London life. I do like London life. Um, so my reason for staying in London. So, I yeah, we met when I was at VaynerMedia. And for people who don't know Gary Vaynerchuk, you should pause this and go Google him and then come back. You'll get a lot more context on uh, on my world for a long time because I worked for him for seven years and also the context in which we we met. Um, and so that was four years. That's what moved me to London. And with Gary, you know, I had done 10 years in advertising agencies at that point. I was like, okay, I think that's, I think I'm done with that chapter. Time to do something different. Uh, and I love Gary and, you know, left on good terms and all that stuff. And we explored a couple other opportunities for me to stay within his world because he has VaynerMedia and then he has a lot of other stuff, including a mm. lot in sport that he's doing these days. Did you see that he bought a pickleball team, by the way? A pickleball team? A pickleball. No, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. So he's got this, sorry to go off on another tangent. Yeah, go for it. He, for a long time, um, so for people that didn't Google him, the quick thing you need to know to make this story relevant is Gary Vaynerchuk is an uh, investor, entrepreneur, personality in the US. And uh, he's built a lot of very successful businesses. But his dream since he was a boy was to buy the New York Jets, the American football team. Yeah. And so everything that he's done has been one big professional <laughs> chess game to accumulate the money and also the you know, relationships and experience needed to have a shot at buying an American football team. And so he's always been very close to not just football, but kind of the sport industry in general. And now one of the businesses that actually his brother runs um, is kind of a talent agency, mm. uh, sports agency business Vayner, for NFL Vayner players. X? And they've, they've expanded. Yeah. Vayner, um, Vayner Sport, I think, oh, is, okay. is that one. I think it's just called that. Uh, and now they, I think they've done some basketball. I know they've done some UFCs. So they've expanded outside of American football. But he's, I think he, when I worked with him, he was looking at buying like a minor league American baseball team. So he's mm. always dabbled. And then he he always had this um, perspective, particularly when it came to esports, when people would bring up this conversation and be like, I think it's ridiculous that people will watch other people play a video game. And he would be like, and I totally agree. Why is that more ridiculous than people watching grown men and women kick a ball around the field? (laughs) It's not. It's just that we've accepted it. And in our moment in time, there are sports that are accepted as being mainstream, you know, the big leagues, et cetera, like football, American Mm. football, basketball, baseball, cricket, what, what have you. But that's not always the case. Sports like businesses you know, they rise and fall over time. Yeah. And so a hundred years ago in America, it was horse racing and boxing. Yeah. And now it is 
football and basketball and baseball is even on the decline. So there's this Mm. constant kind of changing landscape of sport. And he believes that pickleball has a shot to become a much bigger sport than it is. What is pickleball? What what happens in pickleball? It's kind of like tennis, but with teams and like bigger rackets and balls. Uh, You just have to go Google it. So it's not with, it's not with, it's not with, you don't hit pickles though. It's actually, I don't think there's anything actually pickle related about (laughs) it, unfortunately. Maybe Uh, they eat it in the stands and all that. I thought it'd be like the Coney, Um, the Coney Island hot dog competition or whatever they eat, where they eat the hot dogs. That was a, that's an interesting sport. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So he bought a team, a pickleball team. So you should look that up. Yeah. Um, But anyway, there's lots of Gary's world, but it all is in New York. Like that's mm. where his center of the universe is. So I didn't want to go back to New York. Um, and from a family perspective, we really liked life in London. We like being expats, you know, as an American, it's a good kind of midway between American culture and European culture. Obviously the language, the kind of mm. professional culture is somewhere in between Europe and the U S um, and there's probably a good balance to that. And also working in international businesses, it's a great place to be. Um, and we just liked it here. So yeah. I've decided to stay. Oh, brilliant. Well, that's, that's good to hear. What does rival, well, how would you define what rival does? Is it we are rival or is it just called rival as well? Because I, I So the, we are the business somewhere. is called rival, um, yeah. but it's registered as, and for URLs and social branding, it's we are rival, but we just call it rival. So rival is a marketing consultancy that mm. works with challenger brands. So businesses that are looking to disrupt a category to help them develop the strategies and capabilities that they need to grow faster. So we do a lot of work with startups and scale-ups, but also bigger established businesses that are looking to launch something new or go through some type of transformation. We often get brought in at inflection points within the business. Mm-hmm. So it could be a new round of funding, you know, a new market that a company wants to go into, a new product that they want to launch, something like that. Um, so typically what we do is help with brand development, go-to-market, planning. So like actually Mm. building the marketing strategy and then capability building in the marketing function, training, organizational design, uh, agency selection, things Mm. like that. So that's what we're up to. And do you have to believe in, in the products? I'm interested in that as well, in a sense that, um, say I only have 40 minutes on this call, which is weird because only two of us on the call, but it's, uh, it's strange. We'll, we'll carry, we'll carry on and see what happens. Hopefully we can, we can tweak that on the, the call, but with the products, I'm always interested because as a sort of non-consumer myself, I guess I'm, as I got older as well, increasingly minimalist, how do you view the products and the companies you work for? Do you have to sort of believe in, in what they're doing and, and see the value to the audience? Yeah, definitely. Um, and a lot of it comes down to the people as well. Mm. So one of the things that I'm really passionate about is I think when it comes to choosing a consultant or an agency or an external partner, the same rigor and focus should be put on culture fit as if you were hiring somebody into your own team. Because in Mm. my experience, the best work and certainly the most enjoyable work comes from when there's a really strong culture fit um, between you know, the clients and the agency or the consultancies. That's a lot of what we do. And then the product as well, um, you know, needs to be something that we're passionate about that we think actually has a chance at disrupting the industry. So we put a lot of time into kind of picking the right clients for us and the type of type of work we want to do and the type of culture that we want to have. Well, something you've talked about a lot, I know, is quality versus quantity in the, in the mix there, because 
for example, with the podcast, I started this very rough and ready on my phone, whereas my wife now is trying to come on board as a graphic designer and she's doing sort of logos and saying, oh, actually, even though you're the one that's trained in radio editing, I'll, I'll do some of the editing because you just whack it up. And there's a sense of, for me, it was like I had to get the podcast done. I had to get it out. And I've sort of had that attitude throughout my career, but she's very much from a different background of, of considering things and putting together things in a, in a nice way. How do you see that balance? Because particularly in the digital space, I know in your marketing, you said that it's a lot about volume and not about necessarily ruminating too much on a campaign. Yeah. So first of all, I have a great post-production agency. If you yeah. need some help on the podcast, they're fast and uh, easy to work with and really good at what they do. That could be good. So let me know if you want that intro. Yeah. I think again, to what I was saying about time and structure, it, I think the answer is going to come from what works best for you and who you are. Because for example, when it comes to quantity and quality, so to oversimplify, the debate would be, is doing more that's less good better than doing mm. less that's more good, right? Mm. I'm far, of course, quality matters, but I think we overthink things to the 10th degree and our perception of what good looks like is not always the market's perception of what good looks like, whether that's a customer or just your audience on LinkedIn or whoever's listening to your podcast, we're a mm. bit biased. So I push the quantity. Yes, died. But I have two co-founders. You know, one of them is probably right in the middle, and the other one is is definitely quality over quantity. Uh, and Dubose, if you're listening, I love you for it. <laughs> but we have a really good balance, and so that means like they sometimes hold me back in a good way of like, hey, we shouldn't rush to get like we almost did a Web three podcast. I still think we should do a Web three podcast, but I listen to them and I listen to some people around the business who are like, you know, let's wait until we have some work and credibility in this space mm. before we put ourselves out there. So focus a little bit more on quality. So I think it really comes down to who you are. Are you more comfortable and lean more towards, I want to do more and I'm okay if it's not perfect, or mm. are you the other end of the spectrum? But the way that I think about it and how I framed it up for people in the past that I, I've heard has been helpful is get it to 80% and ship it out there, whatever yeah. it is. Like that 80% line for me, it's not that it should be crap or you know it's crap. Don't put that out there. Yeah. But sometimes it can take the same amount of time and effort to get something from 80% to 100% or your biased perception of what 100% is. And so if you take that time that would have gone into making something 100% from 80% and put it back into making five other things that are 80%, uh, I think you can accomplish a lot more, but that's what I'm comfortable with. And that's what I personally believe. No, it's very interesting because at the moment, she, my wife is is revisiting sort of jingles that we have for the podcast. So this may go out without an initial jingle because we're looking at, at what that sound is. And, and we've had one that my brother actually is a singer songwriter had made for us, but we're going to tweak it and, and things like that. Whereas I've always just been put, yeah, I need to get this podcast out regularly to build an audience and actually, but then you have to look at other people's perspective because I don't care what a podcast sounds like or what the production is around it. I just want to hear a conversation and what people have to say. Whereas I think some people it's that experiential element to it is, is important as well. So it's, it's fascinating that. Um, what about sport and where that fits in, in Boston? Have you learned anything from Bill Belichick at the, the Patriots in terms of leadership? Have you read about him? Cause he, he wasn't even a high level football player, was he? I think, and he's, he's done wonders six, no. six times Super Bowl champion head coach. Yeah. I mean, he's a coach through and through. So I will say, uh, growing up in Boston, the Patriots were terrible really? in the 90s. And <laughs> so I have very much enjoyed, you know, the last 10, 15 years. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to be from Boston and not be a sports fan. It's kind of in the water over there. So I am uh, Patriots, Celtics, 
Red Sox probably in that order, mm. but yeah, sport. And then more personally, fitness has always played a big role in my life. Um, so even now it's like, you know, I watched most of the Patriots games. We've got the NFL game pass. I try to go to one of the games every year that they do here in London, which is a fascinating uh, experience. So yeah, that's also a big part of my life. Yeah. For American football, it's a lot of communication there, a lot of strategy, isn't there? It's sort of like someone, yeah. someone likened it to the military. You've got aerial attacks, you've got ground attacks, you've got the whole, the whole balance. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the, I mean, it's probably true with all sport, but I think there's a lot of sports that you can really enjoy just for the pure entertainment value, mm. you know, football to a certain extent, it's always moving. It never stops, et cetera. Um, hockey, I think, you know, ice hockey, it's like, again, same type of thing. Something's always happening. Uh, but football, like I totally get why people think it's boring. There's so much, you know, time when nothing's happening, et cetera. But the more you understand it, the more you understand the strategy and all the decisions that need to go into every single play and all the variables of what could happen, it's fascinating. It's like a thousand chess games happening concurrently for yeah. two hours. Um, so once you learn it, once you get into it, I think it's that much more enjoyable. And then of course there's the fantasy football side of it, which is huge in the U S I know yeah. your version of fantasy football is big over here, but we have our, uh, expat fantasy football league called improper football that is now <laughs> going on its fifth year. Oh, wow. So, and how are you getting on in that? Fun too. You doing okay? In that? Uh, I won, I won the first season. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've kind of been middle of the pack. Since then. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fascinating sport. And I love, and we'll talk about it in a second, but we'll take a pause because I think this meeting is going to cut off in a second and I'll, um, okay. I'll, if that's okay, I'll send you another, another link. But yep. yeah, I'm fascinated by the, the, uh, the, the way that NFL approaches it because it's very much a less is more approach. Like we said, 16 regular season games, is it? And then you get, you get the playoffs, whereas a lot of yeah, other yeah. sports are constantly expanding, you know, soccer is the ua for the european governing bodies constantly introducing new tournaments new games cricket has new formats whereas i think yeah nfl's like this is it you've got these appointments of you you know every sunday or most sundays for for a few weeks a year which, which kind of makes it special yeah i mean they're a juggernaut like the business of the nfl is just mm. it's, it's a monster you know what they've created the value they've created the amount of money that goes into it so yeah fascinating sport to watch and also business to study as well absolutely let me send you another link and we'll uh, resume this yep. conversation momentarily thank you Eric. Just a second and we're back zoom have just changed their uh, free policies i've just seen so you only get 40 minutes now on a one-to-one -one. so apologies oh, for wow. that eric didn't know that Rudy yeah i'll go continue they're they're going to get us eventually aren't they you have to you have to pay for it eventually i guess all these these modern mediums you have to you kind of they're trying to find find a way to, to monetize. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, digital marketing. I was, I was interested in that because obviously Gary Vaynerchuk's massive about that. How do you see to see that? And how do you see that evolving as people's digital kind of use changes? And do you think people are, are going to ration their, their digital use, social media use? Or do you think it's kind of a future thing we're going to be glued to our, our smartphones indefinitely? It's interesting. I think there's probably a few answers and a lot of nuance to exploring that question. I think the first thing I would say is there's always macro trends and micro trends. And I think right now we're in a bit of a micro trend of, you know, more privacy, more mm. restrictions on social media, 
hopefully more regulation as well. And I think that's a good thing because I think there have been so many second degree consequences and negative externalities of social and web 2.0 that we didn't foresee and didn't get ahead of. Mm. Um, so I do, I do think that there's a bit of a pushback now, at least in, you know, everybody has their own kind of communities and worlds that they live in, but at least in mine. And I think that that's a good thing. I think the macro trend of digital, and then there's the whole conversation of web three and the metaverse. I think that only goes in one direction. Mm. And ultimately that comes from, and all change and innovation comes from the ability to deliver more, better, cheaper value faster. Like mm. that's it. That's kind of the relentless engine that drives all professional growth and these trends. And so digital just has the ability to do that more than the offline world does. And there will be counter trends and people still wanting to write handwritten notes and buy physical books and all that stuff, which I'm certainly not against. And actually, ironically, as, as it becomes more and more rare, it becomes more and more valuable to do mm. things like that. But I think in general, that's kind of what drives everything is like people want what they want and they want it now and they want it for cheaper. Um, and that will always be the case. Yeah, it was interesting. I went to a talk with a male supermodel, David Gandhi, and he was talking how Dolce and Cabana, I guess, one of his employers still has the massive billboard in, in Times Square in, in New York and how they value that. But I know Gary Vaynerchuk has said people are looking at their phones, they're not looking up at billboards. So it's that yeah, it's that 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 argument. But I suppose eyeballs are eyeballs, aren't they? Yeah. And it's, and, and, you know, this gets into more of kind of the marketing speak, but there is awareness, which is how many people see something. And there's equity, which is the perception of how they see it. So Dolce & Gabbana having a billboard in Times Square, when people see that they're like, oh shit, you know, Dolce & Gabbana, which of course they think of already, but particularly for a luxury brand, mm. you need to show up in ways and in places that people think are prestigious and expensive. Um, and so I, you know, having worked with a lot of luxury brands, particularly in the earlier days of social media advertising, and a lot of them are there now, but in the early days, it was like, we don't want to show up on Facebook. We're a luxury brand. It needs mm. to be billboards. It needs to be print magazines. It needs to be airports or whatever. Um, and I do think that's changing as the perception of the media changes, but also as these businesses change and the people within them change. One of the things I'm fascinated by is there's you know, the change of culture and technology and media, then there's also the changing of the people who make the decisions and, and spend the budgets. And that's changing as well. Like the CMO of 2030 is going to look very different than the CMO of 2010. Mm. And they're going to have different worldviews and perspectives on how they want to do things. So I think in general, when it comes to marketing, even though you know we're what, 20 years into the digital marketing at this point, it's still very early in many ways because there's a lot of the industry that doesn't value it in the same way or doesn't understand how to use it to the fullest extent. So there's still a ton of opportunity there. And the changing cultures is, is, is interesting how people evolve something. And I've spoken to you about our venture Attic Box Audio, which people can look yeah. at at atticboxaudio.co.uk, the life story idea. It's something that I've been uncomfortable with, which is, is silly because actually it's at the forefront of that idea is me having conversations with people and building upon a, a career of doing that. I've never been hugely comfortable with with self-promotion and and sort of self-aggrandizement, which is it seems contrary to the to the popular culture at the moment. I think it was something that, you know, it was, it was self-praise is no praise, wasn't it? When we were growing up, I think to a certain yeah. extent, maybe it wasn't so much in the States, maybe that was in the UK. How do you handle that dynamic? Less, less about, so in the States, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you talked about uh 
growing your, your your own personal brand how do you evolve that is it again doing it in your own image rather than trying to be something you're not totally i mean that's always the answer right that's always the answer to happiness it's always the answer to long-term success not always short-term success but long-term success for sure and i think it's the hardest thing you know i talked a lot about perspective in the beginning i think everything comes down to are the two keys to life if i want to go that high level and heady mm, perspective perspective and self-awareness that's yeah. it you know there's more things of course but that's 80 percent of it like those mm. are the main ingredients in you know in what we're all doing here because perspective gives you gratitude on what you have and understanding of the world around you and self-awareness gives you confidence to mold the world and your surroundings in a way that's going to make you happier, more productive, more fulfilled. Mm. And so I think about that a lot and try mm. to, and, and the other thing about both of those concepts is I think anecdotally, and when I say them, I think most people perceive those things as something that's fixed, maybe self-awareness a little bit less, but I think they're, you know, much like anything, there's skills that can be developed and it depends on how focused and how hard you work on them. Mm. Um, and so yeah, I think so much comes down to trying to better understand the world around you and at the same time trying to understand, try to better understand yourself. And how, in terms of the self-awareness, how important is it to not be too defeatist with that? Because clearly we have role models, we get inspiration. When we reflect upon ourselves, there may be things that rough edges we can, we can shine. Do you think it's a, a case of acknowledging what, again, are non-negotiables you can't change and things that you can improve on to become, I guess, a more rounded leader at rival or a better husband, better father, whatever it might be. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, there's that saying of, um, you know, accept the things you can't change and whatever that comes from. I think it comes from Alcoholics Anonymous actually, which is, which is a fascinating, if you haven't read the Alcohol Alcoholics Anonymous book or aren't familiar with kind of the program, there's a huge religious component to it that is not for me, mm. but in terms of philosophy and ideas that have been able to change human behavior, and even change addiction in humans, which is something that's so, so hard. To, like it's a really fascinating thing to look into, even if you don't feel like you need that type mm. of help, just as kind of like a curiosity, professional curiosity thing. Um, I would definitely look into it. I totally forgot what the question was. Can you remind me? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, I was just talking about the uh, self, self-improvement versus in balance with accepting yourself. Right. You were talking about accepting what you are, but, yeah. but, but also I think trying to, you want to be, a better communicator, you want to be a better leader, you want to be a better marketer, father, yeah. husband, whatever. And again, be. to the black and white gray thing, like it's both. The yeah. answer is there is no answer. Yeah. It's kind of that well, type like, of thing, which well, is I guess kind of the Boston Celtics next season, you know, they're going to want to improve, aren't they? After losing, <laughs> losing to the Golden State Warriors, but they're not going to throw everything out. They're going to have to go within the parameters of, of who they are. Yeah. So the way, the way that I think about it and the way that, and I won't say works for me because you know, if it works 60% of the time, then that's great. And there's plenty of times when I feel like it doesn't work and I don't know what I'm doing and like, what am I actually doing here? There's so much of that that doesn't get talked about. Um, I think you need to be happy with what you have while equally wanting something more. And depending on who you are, one of those is probably going to naturally over-index. For me, it's wanting something more. And so I actually need to work a lot harder on being happy with what I have and trying to find that balance. But I think it's both of those things together. And to what I was saying before, it comes down to how and when you deploy them. I think of it as gears. You know, when I'm in work mode, when I'm sitting here working on building rival, it is 
I am hungry for something new. When I'm sitting at home with my kids and my wife, it is, I'm so happy with what I have. And then sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes with rival and with work, it's time to be happy with what you have. And sometimes at home, it's like, no, actually, I think that we should go change this. And so actually it comes down to the ability to do both those things, but more importantly, know when you should do either. Yeah, being instinctive and, and with it as well as analytical. I love it, Eric. Time has, has beaten us. Really appreciate your insight and fantastic. We'll talk next time more about um, Boston Red Sox as well and the Celtics coming off the, the championship loss to, to the Golden State Warriors. Steve Kerr, by the way, his head coach, what a career he's had. You look at his NBA yeah, titles as amazing. A, a player and a, a coach now, kind of unheralded globally. He's not even a big figure like Shaq or or LeBron, yeah. but just an amazing, amazing yeah. person. In terms of no, they deserved it. We've got we got some more pieces to put into place, but I think <laughs> it was a it was a great first year uh, for the new head coach in Boston. So, well, cool, good stuff. Well, let's know where, where do we follow you. What's the where's the best place to go? LinkedIn's the primary channel for me, so you can look up Eric Fulweiler on LinkedIn, or you can check out WeAreRival.com. Good man, Eric. Thank you for your time. We'll speak again soon. I hope. Thanks, man. Well, thank you to Eric for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate his insight, his thoughts, and that kind of analysis of, of how he is and how he wants to be and how his day should be set up for productivity, I think is key. And I think one thing, rather than the silver bullet approach, which you hear in a lot of modern media books, kind of people offering you the, the solution, the perfect solution, I think that flexibility, as he says, rolling with the punches, knowing when to adapt, when not to do things. I think people who have complicated morning routines, which involve upwards of, of 10, 11 kind of parts to it then if you have a late night how does that affect it you still get up at 5 a.m even if you had enough sleep what happens if your children if you're a father or a mother if they wake up in the middle of the night they need you to do something needs you to do something at 6 a.m when you're in the middle of meditation or scheduling your day whatever it might be so i, th- I appreciate his approach there good insights he's a very successful gentleman and a linguist as well i didn't realize he spoke so many languages so that's impressive and certainly maybe added to his, his ability to communicate and certainly fantastic at that so appreciate eric's time let me know if you enjoyed the podcast please rate it on whatever platform you're listening to it on i would appreciate that any constructive criticism and the feedback always appreciated too we'll try and act upon it if if i can and uh, thank you again to you for listening and thank you to the sponsors bang olufsen of cheltenham and serene av who are specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations. Remember Cytoplan, if you're looking to optimize your immunity with their food-based supplements, head to cytoplan.co.uk. You get 30% off your first purchase, 10% thereafter with the discount code DRAPER10R. My last name, D-R-A-P-E-R, all capital letters, the numerals one zero and the capital letter R. And remember, we've arranged for some lucky listeners to get a 100% free mentoring session with Anthony Asprey of the Whole Man Academy. He's been a recent guest on the podcast, fairly recent. Look back and listen to that if you'd like to know more before booking that free session. But there are five going each month with the Sport and Life podcast, and you can book it now via the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Appreciate you being here. I hope you have a great week. Goodbye for now.